Morocco is the single most mentioned destination in TripCast 360 history. Join us for part one of our journey. Hello and welcome to TripCast 360, the podcast of lively banter about travel, tourism, and entertainment. I'm your co-host, David Cumberbatch in New York, joined by Michael Gordon Bennett from the hot box of Las Vegas. Morocco is such a dynamic and vibrant tourism destination that we decided to do a TripCast first, divide a show into two podcasts. I've covered a lot of destinations during my time in this industry. You come close to Morocco as a total travel destination. So today we're going to jump right in. We encourage you to download and listen to this podcast on our website, tripcast360.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our social media handles under the name Tripcast360 are Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at tripcast360.com. Megan Lohr is a certified travel associate and director of Wanderlust Voyages Travel based in Massachusetts. She and her husband, Bill Git Babette, a Moroccan-American, formed their tour company to take clients on fully immersive guided tours to Morocco. From Tangier to the Sahara, it's one truly unique adventure. Megan is also an attorney, but she has a deep reservoir of knowledge of a country she loves deeply, which is why we wanted her on our podcast. Megan, welcome to TripCast 360. Thank you so much for having me. Say hi, Dave. Hi, Megan. How are you? Good. How are you doing? We are doing fantastic. Such a pleasure to speak with you and to, to, to gain some knowledge from your vast experience in Morocco. Uh, Morocco is such a vast and wonderful travel experience that uh, that's the reason why we've asked you to take us on a guided tour as if we were there on a 10-day visit. So to our audience, uh, if you don't hear some of your favorite places in Morocco right away, just keep listening. We'll get to it. Uh, and we will. And, and Megan, I think I told you yesterday, this is our 18th or 19th uh, podcast. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that Morocco has come up in at least half of them. That's right. <laughs> Every, I mean, we've got people who've never been to Morocco and they always say it's on their bucket list. We've got people who have been to Morocco and they want to go back. And, you know, I, I have rudimentary knowledge of Morocco through my father, but uh, that was 50 years ago. So um, <laughs> this is going to be an interesting journey with you as you take us on, on, on this trip uh, via our podcast. Um, my first question to you is just tell us in general, what makes Morocco such a special place? Oh, it's hard to make that a short answer. <laughs> um, you don't have to on our account. <laughs> okay. So Morocco is, first of all, incredibly welcoming. That's one of the key aspects of the culture is hospitality. It is such an important part. If you go to someone's house, no matter if they're a complete stranger, they will welcome you in, offer you tea, and it is simply expected. They are very helpful, very welcoming to travelers, and they love to meet people from all over the world. It is also such a unique experience for American travelers in particular, especially people who haven't done a whole lot of travel, or they do most of their travel in the Caribbean or Europe, or 
even I would say if they spend a lot of time in Japan, you know, it is from the places compared to the places I have been, it has felt the most foreign and it is a fascinating look at just another, another culture and the way the cities are structured and the way life goes. And one of the fascinating things is they don't have the same American mentality of work as much as you can <laughs> during the day. You know, it's very common the cafe culture over there you see all of these people who they will spend hours gathering together at these outdoor cafes and it's very interesting because normally in the u.s we're used to you sit at a table with two chairs you're facing each other out there everything is the tables are set up with chairs next to each other facing the street because people just sit there and drink tea and smoke and people watch and spend a lot of time together that way it's just a much more laid back feel there. And I absolutely love it. So I'd love to do that right about now. How about you, Dave? Man, I just, <laughs> Oh, most, <laughs> most certainly. Uh, and Megan, uh, as mentioned before, no need for me to repeat it. Um, Michael has mentioned it. You mentioned it as well. There is so much to Morocco. There is mm -hmm. so much. So let's break it down by city. Casablanca in the northwest. It's not by Gibraltar, but it's somewhat north in the northwest. Let's start uh, there. Take us on a 10-day journey and why uh, Casablanca and what is there to see and do in Casablanca? Well, the main reason people have Casablanca included is because that's where most people fly into. <laughs> it is the largest airport in the country. There are quite a few international airports, but most of them are pretty difficult to find flights into, especially from the US. Pretty much everything has to route through Casablanca. So if you have to go to Casablanca and wait to catch a flight to some other city, just get out of the airport and make the drive. It's much more scenic that way. But within the city itself of Casablanca, there's actually not a whole lot <laughs> to see there. Um, everybody knows Casablanca because of the movie. Well, the movie filmed in, Cal filmed in California. <laughs> so you're not going to have any sort of following the footsteps. Um, and even if it was kind of even if it had been filmed in the city itself, it would look completely different. different. Casablanca is a very modern city. It is the heart of business and industry for the country. So for the most part, the major attraction to see is the Hassan II Mosque. Mm -hmm. Now, the Hassan II Mosque is right on the edge of the ocean, and it is massive. Inside, it can hold, um, what is it, 25,000 people in prayer with another 80,000 outside on the courtyard. It's absolutely beautiful. And it was completed in the 90s. And it was built using materials and uh, craftsmanship from artisans all over the country. It was, a lot of it was donated. So it was really, you know, it wasn't just 
the king saying, oh, I want to build this. It was the people coming together to create this. And it is also the only mosque that non-Muslims are going to be able to enter. So mm. absolutely worth seeing. It's gorgeous. And it's also always a beautiful day there. No matter what time of year we go, it may be a little cloudy when we go in, but it's always a bright blue sky at some point while we're there. It's amazing. It's such a beautiful place. Uh, if you are a, movie, a fan of the movie Casablanca, a little bit down the street from there, there is a Rick's Cafe. It is not the original. There was no, <laughs> no original <laughs> Rick's Cafe that was created out of whole cloth for the movie. But of course, everybody wants to find it. So someone created one based on the movie. It is decorated the same inside. Uh, you, do, you can't just go in. You do have to have a reservation for a meal there. But in the evenings, they do have live jazz and everything. And it is very much recreating the iconic cafe in the movie. So in Casablanca, that's actually kind of it. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to commercialize Casablanca too much. My dad was in Morocco back in the 60s. And I, I got to tell you, he knew every line Humphrey Bogart mentioned in Casablanca. He would walk around the house when my mom asked him, where have you been all night? He said, I don't know. It was too long ago. Whatever the line Humphrey Bogart said in the movie. And it drives my mother crazy. And I'm a little six-year-old boy just sitting there laughing because I knew where he was all night long. And she knew too. But um, and he, he recited that hook, line, and sinker. And I think it was his favorite movie. So I've always yeah. had this Casablanca thing sitting in the back of my head since I was a child. And then hearing your father run around the house, you know, repeating all the lines in the movie to cover up for his own uh, nighttime of party. And <laughs> it was still a little tough to deal with. Um, okay. So we've got Casablanca done. Now we're heading uh, north, I guess, on the, on the Atlantic Ocean to, to, north to Rabat, which is, I believe, the capital city. Yes, it is. So the, Rabat has been the capital city since the 40s, I believe. I'm not quite up on my dates. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> um, that's what we have professional tour guides there for. They can tell you exactly what year. <laughs> <laughs> so it was when, the, when Morocco gained its independence uh, from France, the capital moved from Fez to Rabat for good. The capital of Morocco had actually been shifting around throughout its entire history. And so there's four cities that have been the capital, and they're known as the imperial cities. So those are Rabat, Fez, Meknes, and Marrakesh. So Fez, or sorry, <laughs> Rabat is the current one. So Rabat, much like Casablanca, is more modernized. And you will actually find French spoken there much more often than. Arabic. And that's because mm -hmm. French is the language of business, of medicine, of all of these higher level um, bureaucracy type things. And since it is the capital and there's so many people coming through there for government related business that they all just kind of default to French. So Rabat is also a fishing port as well. So oh, you that. see the very iconic blue fishing boats there, just like you did down in Esuera. And wonderful, wonderful seafood because it is right on the coast. It comes in fresh every day. And it does have a little bit more history to it. 
it is a, probably the primary thing to see there would be the Hassan Tower and the Muhammad V Mausoleum. So the Hassan Tower is something that was started back in 1195 thereabouts. And it was supposed to be the largest mosque in the world. And it was going to have two other sister minarets. So minarets are the tall towers. I know that not all mosques have them, but Moroccan mosques definitely have the tall tower. And so it was going to have two sister minarets, one in Seville, Spain, and one down in Marrakesh, the Qutbiyah Mosque. And so the sultan who was doing this project was all in, and then he died. And then apparently nobody else was on board with having this giant mosque because everything just stopped. So <laughs> you have this half-finished minaret still standing, and all of these pillars that were supposed to be you know, supporting the roof of this enormous um, mosque and some of the outer walls still there, still standing after all of these centuries. And on the other end of the property, they did end up building the Muhammad V mausoleum for the burial of Muhammad V. Um, it is absolutely beautiful. It's this little square white building with a green tiled roof and you go inside and there's so many intricate mosaics all over the wall. Um, there's a little dome on top with all of the stained glass and of course there are guards there. And you know how like in England you have the very stereotypical beef eater guards mm -hmm. or the, not the beef eaters, they're the other ones, but the, <laughs> you yeah. know what I'm talking about, the Royal Palace guards. Royal Palace, yeah. Yes, and so you have those in Morocco as well, and they have the fancy dress, and even like even their rifles have um, instead of modern uh, weapons, it's a wooden rifle, and it has inlaid with like mother of pearl intricate design, and just everything is very beautiful, and so it's a great kind of first glimpse at wow, this is really just what Moroccan decor is. Mm -hmm. It's really just about making everything beautiful. Um, and if you do have a little bit more time in Rabat, some people decide to stay the night there before the next leg of the trip. There are some wonderful riads there. Of course, some amazing hotels. And there's also some other places that you may want to wander through, such as one of the old Medinas or the Kasbah uh, Udaya, which has this neighborhood that's all blue and white, and it's very reminiscent of like a Suera or a Sila. So something that, depending on what your entire uh, itinerary is going to look like, we may or may not include because you might be getting that same thing elsewhere. Okay, yeah. uh, I'm gonna stop you. Before Dave asks this question, explain to, tell our audience two things. What is a Riyadh and what is a Medina? The Riyads are kind of Morocco's version of a bed and breakfast. So until sometime in the 1900s, there were no Riyads as accommodations for travelers. They were only family homes. And a Riyadh has to have a central courtyard that is usually open air. Modern ones have a retractable roof typically. 
and there has to be some sort of water. So that may be a fountain, a swimming pool, a, like a fountain coming out of the wall, but there's always some kind of fresh water and there's always multiple floors. So in the heat of the summer, you stay down on the lower floors, which that water helps keep cool. In the winter months, you stay on the upper floors where you're gonna have more heat rising. Um, they are much smaller when they have been, so in the 1900s, they, have, they started using them for travelers. And they, have, they may have as few as five rooms or maybe, maybe a dozen rooms in one Riyadh. Uh, other ones will be a couple of riads linked together, but it's much more intimate and you get that classic Moroccan decor. So you have the tiled floors and the mosaics on the walls and the intricate scroll work and everything. And something else really interesting is if you're in a riad, usually in the scroll work at the top, you can look and you can find the date it was built. However, keep in mind that when it says, you know, 1123, <laughs> that doesn't actually mean it was built in the 1100s. That is the Islamic year. And mm -hmm. in the Islamic year, we're only in year 1450 something, 55, I think. So it's actually, if you go just by that, it looks a little bit more impressive, <laughs> but <laughs> much more modern. But it does give you an idea. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, and then Medinas. So the Medinas are the city center. And in Morocco, usually you're people want to see the old Medinas. They are usually a lot of winding alleyways. In some cities, no motorized vehicles are allowed. Other cities, they are. But usually not they're not big enough to accommodate cars. It has to be, you know, a little like tuk-tuk or a motorcycle or something like that. And that's where you find the souks or the shops and you'll hear that described a lot. But Medina is really just like the downtown area. Looking at my map here, it seems like as though it's extremely close to Spain. Is there a Spanish influence there as well while at the same time trying to maintain your traditional our culture? Absolutely. So Morocco has been various parts. It has been colonized by um, the French, the Arabs, the Spanish, the Portuguese throughout the years. And so you'll find stronger influences from other cultures in different places. Um, I know that El Jadida, which is just outside of Casablanca, that was Portuguese. So that has a very heavy Portuguese influence. And with Spain, absolutely up north in Tangier, at the narrowest part of the Strait of Gibraltar, it's only seven miles between the two countries. And mm -hmm. so you can hop on a ferry. I think there's six per day. And it's a, you know, 35, 45 minute ride over. So it is mm -hmm. makes a wonderful day trip if you're up in Tangier for a couple of days. So hop on over to Tarifa, beautiful little city. Do you need a, a visa, some sort of visa or something to travel from within that seven mile space to travel from Morocco to Spain? Well, you would need, you would be entering Spain. And so if you are from a country where you need a visa to go to Spain, then yes. So the first couple of times that I was up in Tangier with my husband, 
I wanted to take the ferry to Spain. I'm like, oh, we're so close. And he's like, yeah. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. that was before he got his Moroccan citizen or his American citizenship and Moroccan's native visa. So he couldn't go. So Americans don't need a visa. Uh, most Europeans, well, all Europeans, I'm sure, <laughs> do not need a visa to enter Spain and other countries. I will leave that up to their own knowledge. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what did you do in Tangier when you were there? Tangier is really where we go to kind of relax and unwind and have fun. <laughs> so, so much of Morocco, there's so much history and so many things to see. You know, you need to, you have like this list of, you need to see this, that, and the other in all of these cities. But Tangier is a place to just kind of enjoy. We have, one of our favorite hotels is right on the Mediterranean. And so, you know, you look out the window and you see the beautiful sparkling turquoise water. There's the beach right there. They have recently actually, uh, in the past few years, entirely redone the waterfront. So there used to be all kinds of cafes and everything. And so it was kind of interfering, one, with the view, and two, with the space on the beach. But they've gotten rid of all of those. It's all just beachfront in the summer there's just all night parties on the beach <laughs> wow. know, they have music they have areas set up you know for kids to play because in the summer all moroccans tend to flock to the cooler areas of course and mm -hmm. really a very popular spot for that um great place for seafood and also if you enjoy nightclubs tangier has some incredible nightlife and any any kind if you want you know like a discotheque with dance music or a with live music you can find ones that have european music that have traditional moroccan music hookah bars regular bars some that have all of them and they do not close until i don't know something like tooth no like three or four in the morning. Ooh, my kind of place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it is, you know, and it's also this very interesting thing. I think I've heard that in Spain, this is also something they do. But in Morocco, if you go to the bars between like nine to maybe 11, you just get food. <laughs> they bring you food. And I'm not talking about like, you know, just, peanuts and popcorn it's like oh here's all these fish oh here's a lamb's head or <laughs> here's <laughs> you know like actual meals and it's just free you just go there and so you have dinner and keep drinking and <laughs> it's a very interesting culture to visit <laughs> that, 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 but by the way that's an accurate description of spain i'm just verifying yeah. that since i lived there for three years <laughs> <laughs> yeah so probably where they came up with the tradition uh, yeah uh, i be, before we jump on to the next question i want to circle back to something you mentioned to us that Arabic and primarily french is conducted for business as a u.s tourist let's say i um i didn't have a guide is there enough people in country who kind of speak broken English, if you will, that you can understand and get around on your own? Absolutely. Uh, so the everyday person, probably not. But when you are in places where tourists 
go, there's always going to be people who speak enough English and, you know, shopkeepers and things like that. They, they have enough. And one of the things I have found is that a lot of Moroccans and actually especially a lot of Berbers, this seems to be more common with people down the Sahara area. They just pick up languages like crazy. And yeah, we have, so our transportation manager um, is Berber and he, let's see. So obviously Berber, Arabic, English, French, Spanish, Italian, Portuguese, working on his Japanese. I think he's doing pretty good with that and decent amount of German. Wow. And I feel like I'm missing something, but yeah, he's got like nine or 10 languages. So (laughs) that's awesome. I mean, my dad spoke six languages. He's never gone to school. Like he's never studied it in school. This is just him picking it up through working with people. You mentioned Berber. Can you educate our audience in uh, terms of what Berber means, the the Berber people, their customs, their traditions, etc.? Yeah, absolutely. So Morocco, like many places, has been colonized by various groups um, throughout its history. But unlike places like the U.S., it has a much, much longer history. Actually, a couple of years ago, they found what is they think to be one of the oldest human skeletons in the Atlas Mountains in Morocco. Um, So very, very ancient. But the Berbers were the original people who were in Morocco. And this is, you know, sometime in BC that they got there. Mm -hmm. And after the Berbers came the Jews, and then the Arabs, and then various, um, I want to say Portuguese may have been the first European. Well, Roman was in there, of course, in the early days as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of what we think of of the modern European uh, cultures, I want to say Portuguese may have been one of the first, but again, various parts have various different um, places. So the Berber tribes are primarily in the south so you'll find berber tribes all across northern africa it's not they're not just in morocco no, Morocco, right Right. so they have you know some of them live in the mountains some of them live in the desert and that's a lot of what accounts for how it feels like you are just stepping into a different world as you move between the cities mm-hmm. because now you are in places that have traditionally had a different culture. Um, They have a different language, they have a different form of writing, and so it is something that is very unique. And of course, like any any group that has tribes, there's different tribal dialects as well. So they may or may not be able to communicate, (laughs) even though they are all in the country. I'm good at sign language. Yeah. (laughs) You also mentioned a Jewish population there in an uh, Arab country. Yes. How does uh, how how does that blend? What's the blend there? <laughs> well, actually, the it is a it was once a very important part of the Moroccan population. You know, there were a lot of Jews in. Uh, let's see, there's still large populations in Casablanca, Rabat, um, Eswara used to be one third Jewish. There were a lot in Fez. Uh, Marrakesh, Meknes at once had four different um, 
Jewish schools. And it's always been a place where they've lived. Um, unfortunately, there has been some clashes in the past. Unfortunately, it seems that seems to happen wherever they are. However, overall, the Jews have been generally protected by the king. So they lived in what were called the melas. And those are usually located close to the palace, kind of like, okay, no, they're here, they're in my protection. And the melas were so named because the mel for salt, uh, they were given control of the salt trade, which of course, very, very valuable. Mm. And there's always, has always been top advisors to the king who have been Jewish. So, and during World War II, um, there were a lot who fled Europe to Morocco and the king, you know, Hitler said, oh, we want the Jews. And he said, no, screw off. They're wrong. <laughs> you know, <laughs> okay, what religion they are, they're here, they're under my protection, go away. And so there was a ton. It wasn't until Israel became um, a country and, you know, there was a mass exodus and a lot of people went to Israel from from there and so the population is still very small but they were once a very large part of the country and so one of the things that kind of brings me to one of the big questions we always get is about isn't morocco a, an islamic country yes but only in the same way that kind of you know the u.s is on a whole could be considered a christian country because it's the dominant religion and that doesn't mean that there's really anything different, you know, it just means they have mosques instead of cathedrals everywhere. And right. that, oh, here are the prayer times and people may dress a little bit differently and you're not going to find pork pretty much anywhere except a couple of hotels. Um, but other than that, you know, there's nothing that's being imposed upon other travelers. You know, you can yeah. find, like I said, you can actually find pork in really? various places yeah really and that's you know huge no-no and morocco has a couple of wineries and you know yeah. they, they oh, we're, we're, we're gonna get to the wineries yeah. in a minute i'll tell you something i i just want to take three seconds to welcome megan officially to our club <laughs> because she just said screw off <laughs> i don't know if you i don't oh, i caught it <laughs> you caught it okay okay so megan welcome again all right thank you um, you're now officially one of us you're a friend excellent. of the show so you're good um so basically the the muslims in morocco they don't care what religion you are they actually have better uh i guess view not that they would ever you know, discriminate against people who are agnostic or atheist or whatever, but they see anyone who has, who's part of a religion that has a holy book. So basically Christians and Jews as they're really kind of the same, because if you go back in those, in the Torah and the Bible and the Quran, you're going to find where they all intersect. And so they're like, eh, yeah. you guys are good. <laughs> and so actually like, it's a much bigger deal if a Muslim marries you know, an atheist or a Buddhist than it is for them to marry a Jew or a Christian. Because they're like, oh, you're, you're still part of it. That's nice. Mm -hmm. Well, since we're on the subject of, of uh, faith in custom and culture, mm -hmm. tell us about what a tourist should expect in terms of their own personal dress 
when they come to Morocco? So the biggest thing we say is keep it relatively modest. You know, it that doesn't mean you have to be covered head to toe. You do not have to cover your head. In fact, we tell people do not do that, you know, because it is something that for Moroccan women, it is a personal choice. And so that's a part of their faith. It's not something mandated. You will see women in Western dress with a hijab or traditional dress without a hijab. And it's really just personal. So you're not, it's kind of, because it is more of a symbol of their faith, you don't just put on someone else's faith. Uh, so don't worry about that. Um, as a general rule, we say, you know, keep your shoulders covered and nothing too tight or low cut and something knee length or longer. The only place where that is going to be enforced is entering the mosque. But even then, I know some people have, who have visited mosques um, in other countries and, you know, you have to cover your head and have to your wrist covered you know, you know, not a problem to wear pants. Like one of our uh, favorite guides at the mosque is a woman who half the time she's wearing pants and she doesn't wear a hijab when she goes in. So I'm like, okay, it doesn't, you don't have to. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing about dressing, you know, relatively modestly, it's, it's not mandated. There, nothing's going to, nobody's going to tell you, you can't do that. What, will happen, especially for women, unfortunately all of these rules typically apply to women, is that you're going to get a lot more attention. <laughs> and, you know, it's just nobody wants to be, you know, as you're walking by here, people whisper things under their breath as you pass by and everything gets just really old and annoying. And the interesting thing I've actually found is that if I am wearing uh, especially in Fez, um, sometimes in Marrakesh, but more so in Fez. If I'm wearing a jellaba, which is a traditional Moroccan dress, I get way more comments than if I'm there in traditional or standard Western style clothes. So I will not wear my jellabas or kaftans or anything in Fez because I don't like the extra attention. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So. Tangier seems to be my type of city, the party city, the discos, <laughs> etc. How does that compare to, and I hope I'm pronouncing this uh, correctly, how does it compare to Asila? Asila. Oh, yes. I pronounced it correctly. Good. Yeah. So in terms, uh, Asila is much smaller and it's about 30 minutes outside of Fez, or sorry, Tangier. It is this little, it used to be a Portuguese town. Um, some point throughout its history, it was also often used as a pirate base. That was when it was still Portuguese. And the Medina is this, everything is whitewashed and it has these striking blue accents. It makes me think a lot of pictures you see like of Greece where it's all white and blue. And, but then there's also a bunch of murals there because Asila has become a hub for expats and artists. So mm -hmm. a lot of people who live in that Medina are uh, Europeans and people who are creating, whether it's paintings or woodworking or um, other like metalworking, a lot of artists live there. And so you'll find murals there. And there's this one woman, uh, Karima, she uh, was born, her arms weren't like properly formed and 
So she paints with her feet and she just uses whatever kind of scraps of, you know, canvas or she'll sometimes do them on uh, tiles or pieces of wood. And they're these beautiful, like, usually mostly blue and white and black and, you know, kind of scenes of the Medina. And they're absolutely beautiful. And I keep meaning to I need to get back there so I can get a second one from her. <laughs> like the first time we went, I picked up a picture and I love it. So I need another. So Asila, uh, <laughs> from a geographic standpoint, you got Tangier up on the Mediterranean. So it's a little bit south and inland. Am I right? Uh, it's a little bit south, but not, it, it's a little bit southwest. So okay. it's still coastal. Okay. How, how long, of, how many kilometers distance between the two? Oh, I, I don't know. It's about 30. Oh. 30? 35 okay. minute so, drive. Well, it's, okay, so short. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. I, I'm mm-hmm. just thinking about it from a standpoint like if I went to Tangier and decided to stay a day or two, it's worth a day trip to go there and then come back. That's Absolutely. what I was thinking. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Now I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce it. Uh, this next city that's on your list, but it begins with the word <laughs> chef. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you uh, don't want to give that a shot. Uh, chef. 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 There you go. I was yeah. just going to say that. Ah, yes, that it counts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, there's three, I would say three cities we often hear very strangely pronounced, and that, that's one of them for sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> Chef Shawan is up in the mountains. Um, it is the, so most of Morocco, you have the Atlas Mountains, the High Atlas, the the Middle Atlas and the Anti Atlas, but these are in the Reef Mountains, and it's incredibly lush vegetation up there. And small side note, that's where a lot of cannabis is grown. So sometimes you hear about the hash trade. A hmm. um, lot of drug dealers in Tangier, so do be very careful when you're there. <laughs> okay. And but um, that's because they grow it in Chef Chawan and smuggle it into Europe. But <laughs> that may be in the side you don't want to keep. <laughs> um, but the going up the mountains, and it's this very fascinating thing. I again, I don't necessarily know distances. I just know drive times. I know it's a much shorter distance than, say, Rabat to Tangier, than Tangier to Chefchaouen. But it takes just as long because it's these narrow roads, just two lanes, and driving up the winding mountains and sometimes you have to wait because you know everybody has to wait while you're trying to pass the cow or someone's driving their sheep across and you know it's again entering a different field so you've been in the very modern cities and then the very laid-back Tangier and now suddenly you're in rural Morocco (laughs) not like rural rural like we're gonna get to in the south but this is the first part where you're getting a little bit more um you know watch out for the farm animals. Uh, in fact, one time we were uh, trying to go to Chef Shawan and usually my husband has an impeccable sense of direction, but occasionally he does not. <laughs> not hey, no pressure on you there, I bet yet. <laughs> yeah, so um, this was probably about the, the only time we've like got a complete detour, but we were trying to go this other way and you know, they have roundabouts and it's like, oh, well, now we have to just kind of wait because there's these two cows that apparently had some words with each other because <laughs> they were literally 
locking horns fighting in the road and like their their two people were there kind of trying to pull them apart and we're just like okay <laughs> well should we back up so they don't come this way and hit the car <laughs> wow so that's the kind of thing you have to look out for when you're now off the main highways um so chef shalon is the blue city everybody sees pictures of it everybody wants to go there and if you are up north it is absolutely worth going there if you are not spending time up north if you're trying to do just like an eight-day trip it, i would say it's not necessarily worth the length of time it takes to go up there and then get back down because it is a good four hours um possibly longer out of your way each direction so something that we always kind of talk to people about what's most important some people absolutely especially photographers because it's just fascinating seeing these walls and stairs and the sidewalks everything is painted blue in the heart of the medina and it's all um some there's a, some like white at the top but just everything you see is blue and it's also on the side of a mountain and so it's a very hilly uh, medina as well so quick aside it is unfortunately morocco is not the most friendly of places to people who have mobility issues we do always if someone is coming to us and wants a tour we just need to know that before so we can make sure to accommodate that because we would never recommend that they go to Chef Shawan for that reason. Um, or, you know, if they need to have kids in strollers, like it's, it's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> the alleys yeah. are very narrow. Um, there's randomly steps everywhere. And, you know, oh, here's this tree root, you know, growing across the, <laughs> the pathway and things like that. Okay. So as long as, you know, you don't have any issues with that, beautiful place yeah and one of the fascinating things is that you see a lot of and i'm pretty sure they do this just because it makes such a great picture <laughs> but places that sell pigments that people make paint out of and so you have this striking blue wall and then these sacks of you know pink and yellow and green and red just powders with like the scoop in it and it's multiple shops do that and it's absolutely gorgeous. It is definitely a photographer's dream. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, your favorite city. And I'm, I'm jumping ahead of you and saying your favorite city. I, I guess you can guess which city I'm talking about. But let's talk about Meknes. If you say don't have extra time to spend the night in Shepshawan, uh, if you leave Tangier in the morning and go to Shepshawan because it's very small, you can see in a couple hours, you then just continue down to Meknes and then on to Fez. And Meknes is, I think I, I heard you starting to say that it was one of the four imperial cities. Yes. <laughs> and so it's the one that's the most ignored uh, because it doesn't have a lot that sets it apart from Fez and everybody wants to go to Fez. That's what they've heard of. That's what gets all the attention. But because of that, Meknes is far less populated by tourists and to me that makes it even more fascinating because it is a chance to see more of what moroccan life is like 
And if you are coming from Rabat, Fez is going to be a little bit further um, west than, sorry, Meknes is gonna be a little bit further west than Fez. So you come to that first. And Meknes was the capital only under one sultan, and that was Mulay Ismail. And he was sultan in 1672. Uh, and he was one of the major sultans who really combined forces instead of all of the different tribes being very separated um, and each one dealing with, you know, fighting off the invading European powers and everything. So he really helped consolidate power and fight against people and get them out of Morocco. So you'll see him written about in kind of two different sides, depending on who's doing it. One, he was, you know, very wonderful and <laughs> helped create Morocco. Other is he's very bloodthirsty and all for wars and killing people. Well, <laughs> that depends on you on the side that was getting kicked out or <laughs> on the side of Morocco. Um, he's still a little bit of a controversial figure. You know, he had, uh, he loved his horses. So one of the big things that you see is the stables. He had 12,000 horses and each one had two different slaves assigned to each horse. <laughs> so he spent huge amounts of resources on these animals, which, you know, of course, there was some need for those resources amongst the people, so he's a little bit divisive in that way. Um, overall, though, in Morocco, he is considered a hugely important sultan. Um, but he was the only one who made Meknes his uh, base home. Right. <laughs> um, and so in Meknes, they have the Bab Mansour, which is big, beautiful gate, absolutely gorgeous. Um, and the columns were actually stolen from Bulabilis, which I'll get to in just a moment. But and in front of that is the big main square. And as I said, there's not a lot of tourists there. So you go there and it's just kind of, again, a view of what life is like for locals. You know, it's a big thing after dark, people go out because then, you know, it's going to be cooler in the summer and even spring, fall. And you'll find all kinds of vendors and street performers and very common thing they have is where you can um they have the like motorized cars and you pay 10 dirhams for your kid to drive one around the square for a bit um and then of course all of the cafes once again a lot of them that are set up for you to just people watch and then going into into the medina where like the shops are some of them are very typical of what you find in like the Fez Medina or the Marrakesh Medina. Other parts are really just like an indoor shopping center. <laughs> it is this blend of traditional and modern. And, you know, you find that in the city as well. You know, they have the big, uh, they call Marjan, which is kind of our equivalent to like Walmart, where you can buy everything, and including a big supermarket. Or there's also a lot of people 
who just go to the outdoor markets. And so that's one thing that my sister-in-law does because it's really close to where they live. And it is, first of all, just a fascinating experience going through (laughs) there. And then also just thinking, so in Morocco, the money, um, it's, we always say roughly 10 dirhams to $1. It's like 9.5, 9.7, 9.9, whatever, but 10 to 1. And the coins, the, the largest coin is 10 dirhams. Well, I went with her to the market and she's like buying all these vegetables. She's paying in coins and getting change back. <laughs> how, how does that work? Not in so, America. No, not at all. Um, so again, it's, it's also very interesting to just kind of see that other aspect of, um, of how people live there and you know also in other parts in a lot of the cafes you find a lot of students because there's a big university there there's actually two universities um and so a lot of uh students and then kind of the the walls medina's always had a wall around it because again to for protection that was the old city you can close up the gates protect the city on the outside of it there's also huge place that they now set up for a couple soccer fields and I don't think it was ever done you know it's not something official it's more like hey here's a space we're going to use it and nobody tells them otherwise (laughs) but you always see people playing soccer there and it's a fascinating glimpse at just everyday life so two questions for you based on what you just said before you get to the ruins in Volibus I think it's how you pronounced it um talk about currency. If you're a tourist and you're coming to the country, do you need to have local currency? Yes, absolutely. So Morocco is a closed currency, meaning that you cannot order money from your local you know, Bank of America here in the States. And also, if you have leftover, you cannot exchange it once you're here. You need to do it all in country. It is one of those things where you know, I know that airports are typically not the best place to do it, but we usually do encourage people to get a little bit to start with just because, you know, right away you're going to maybe need to get something to drink or tip people. Tipping is really big there. A lot of people kind of rely on tipping and it is for absolutely everything. You tip the person in the bathroom, you tip the person who helps you park. You, you know, tip anyone who's helping carry your bags. And it doesn't have to be a lot. Like, you know, it can be five dirhams, two dirhams, whatever. Um, so it's not like it's a huge amount, but it is important to tip people. And also, it is not a very credit card friendly <laughs> country. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, hotels you can pay with credit cards. The restaurants where they do cater to a lot more travelers will usually take credit cards, but street cafes will not. um, And little local shops will not. You have to have cash uh, unless you're buying a high ticket item like a rug, leather, jewelry, something like that. They're not going to let your lack of cash stop them from making a sale. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But Overall, you need to you need to have cash there. Okay, 
Uh, and my second question actually has to do with sports. I know on your website you offer golf tours, but you also just mentioned soccer. Uh, what is the sports life like in Morocco for the locals? What what are I, I'm assuming soccer, since it's more international than anything else, is probably the primary sport. But uh, do, do Moroccans partake of other sports? Not really. Okay. <laughs> I mean, everybody plays soccer. Right. Like. My husband played soccer, all his nephews play soccer, just that is the primary sport. Um, you know, there will be some people who play tennis or basketball, but it's not very common to see those kinds of courts. Right. Basically. Yeah, because I'm going back to my head trying to think of like the World Cup. Okay, I've seen a Moroccan team there. Then I'm going through my head thinking about the Olympics, and I can't think of what in the Olympics I've ever seen the Moroccan team do. Yeah, I mean, they probably have um, like track and field events, but it's not a big... Not not a big sports place. Okay, fair fair enough. I mean, I can take a break from sports while I'm there, huh? (laughs) Unless you want to play golf, because the golf... I do play. There you go. It is huge over there, largely because the king has always been into it. Right now, his brother is... The current king's brother is the big golfer of the family, um, he plays all the time. And so that's why there's actually a set of golf courses called the Royal Golf Courses that were designed at the request of the king. Um, and there's many others. It's an incredible place for golf, uh, but that's a whole different. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll have that discussion later. Exactly. Okay. Uh, I cut you off, uh, but I wanted to get back yeah. to Volubus, but I, uh, I, I believe you said they were ancient Roman ruins in our pre-interview? Yes. So Volubilis is about 45 minutes outside of Mechanus. And if you have spent a lot of time in Italy or Greece or other places where you would see a lot of ancient Roman ruins, it may not be of much interest, but I've never been to Italy and I love this kind of history, ancient history. And so I absolutely love Vulavilis. It dates back to 3 BCE, and it was the capital of Mauritania. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, something I've read, never said. (laughs) (laughs) And it was also taken over by the Phoenicians and... um, Carthaginians, Carthaginians, yeah, something like people that. from Carthage, Carthaginians. <laughs> there we go. Um, and then the Romans are the ones that really developed the city and built, you know, the triumphal arch and the very intricate floor mosaics and huge um, structures that are still standing. And it's actually still a, an active archaeological site. They're still working to uncover it. Um, and they're finding, you know, uncovering the houses and, oh, here's their ancient um, oil grinder. And, oh, this one was used for grinding wheat and, you know, finding the, the drains and the, uh, uh, not necessarily sewage, but the drain pipe system. There we go. Um, that thing that Romans are famous for <laughs> putting in everywhere. And, you know, just uncovering all of that. And one of my favorite parts is the mosaics, because not only are these huge mosaics 
that are made of these little tiny tiles still intact but what's even more impressive is once the guide splashes water on it suddenly this kind of muted all looks the same becomes vibrant with all of these bright colors and the fact that it has withstood so many centuries is just amazing to me so i if you are into history absolutely go visit that <laughs> um, and part of the reason it they they're not never going to be know all of what was there is because a lot of it the building materials were then looted to other places like i said the columns a couple of the columns were taken to Mechanus for outside Bad Mansour. Oh, so. <laughs> Part two of our podcast about Morocco will be available on September 21st on TripCast 360 or wherever you get your podcast. Mm -hmm.